On today's program, a nursing triptych. We talk to nurses whose work takes them out of the clinic and into the communities where people live and work. In Los Angeles, Christian Deonce gives neighbors a valuable tool to save victims of violence. These are high school kids. You know, these are, these are aunts, these are tias and tios. You know, these are little grandmas that are going to church. You know, it's empowering. We may be the front lines, but man, we have so many people that are really doing their part. Andrea Chia is a school nurse making connections others can't make. Several days in a row at lunchtime, just be like, hey, miss. <laughs> and, you know, some question about, you know, some sexual something or other. And I'm just, okay, well, I guess this is where I come in. Yeah, I just teach them. I I'm so happy that they are coming to me <laughs> rather than the internet to, to ask these questions. That, I think that's one of the, my favorite parts about school nursing. Finally, Rocky Duff and Megan Kraft, two nurses, talk about what they learned traveling to Central America on medical mission trips. There's always this opportunity to care, not just for the patient, but for the whole patient. Their surgery is one part, their spirit is another, their family is another, and trying to bring all those together is something that we often can lose sight of in a very busy world. Some of the many facets of nursing on the Hear Me Now podcast today. Glad you're here. I'm Sean Collins. There's a life-saving effort underway across the country. Healthcare professionals are going into the community to teach people how to stop the bleed. Time LAX is unveiling some new safety measures. They're called Stop the Bleed Kits, and they're at more than 100 locations in terminals throughout the Christian Deonce is a critical care nurse at Providence's Holy Cross Medical Center, and he joins us now from the San Fernando Valley. Christian, hi. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Good afternoon. Thank you, Sean. You work with Stop the Bleed in the Los Angeles area. Tell me, tell me what you do. As part of uh, the Stop the Bleed campaign, we go out into the community, uh, and we volunteer uh, to teach people uh, the, the essentials of first aid and, more um, importantly, um, how to stop traumatic hemorrhaging uh, in the event of, uh, you know, an emergency, uh, shootings, stabbings, uh, mass casualty events and things like that. But also things like motor vehicle accidents, right? And uh, things that could cause traumatic amputations. Right. As I understand it, there are a lot of deaths that occur from people bleeding out between the time that they're traumatically injured and the time that they can either be seen by a first responder or transported to a hospital. Yes, that is correct. And so that is where this program stemmed from, is the huge loss of life. You know, we're teaching people how to save lives just because in that in those matter of minutes from the first insult or bodily injury uh, to when we put our hands on them and, and put medical care on them, there was a lot of life lost because of uh, blood loss. Yeah, and a lot of traumatic hemorrhaging. It's almost like what we've seen over the last couple generations of putting um, CPR trained people into the community, putting automatic external defibrillators into the community. I mean, part of, part of Stop the Bleed is putting kits 
in public spaces where a volunteer could go find one of these, pull it off the wall, and be able to pack a wound with a hemostatic gauze that would help stop the bleeding pretty quickly. That is correct, yes. And so um, most of the places that we've gone and uh, taught these classes are actually uh, community places, churches, high schools, um, uh, community centers, uh, you know, uh, clinics and things like that. And so, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Um, you know, with the, the big um, American Heart Association push for, for CPR, you did see exactly um, AEDs in malls, AEDs in gyms, amusement parks and things like that. And so I, I think uh, piggybacking on top of that, this is a wonderful, wonderful way uh, to empower the community uh, in a way that, you know, it benefits everybody. Right. On our website, hearmenowpodcast.org, you'll find a link to Stop the Bleed, and you can read up on the, the curriculum. But um, just for the sake of getting some information into people's heads and sort of let them understand what, what you teach, um, there are three main techniques that you teach people, right? Sort of direct pressure when that's possible packing the wounds while maintaining pressure on the source of bleeding. And the third option is to use a tourniquet. That is correct, yeah. And, and when it comes to um, a traumatic event, uh, we now start to think um, uh, life over limb, essentially. Um, and so you're exactly right. Uh, we, we teach identification of potentially life-threatening um, uh, wounds and life-threatening injuries that could be treated, packed, and uh, applications of a tourniquet. And so that way we may jeopardize that limb, uh, but we are definitely aiming to save this life. We do apply cap tourniquets. Uh, they are the gold standard in, in, in uh, public tourniquet use because they're so easy. They're, they're based on military tourniquets, and um, they're, they've been widely produced because they're so easy to use and uh, you know they're made out of uh, hard plastic that's relatively inexpensive and yeah they come in this, this wonderful little kit um, and you know um, if, if only everybody knew how to use this and you know um, we, we hate to use these examples just because they are um, so, so powerful but you know um, the recent events in, in school shootings, concert shootings, and um, you, you, you start to think, okay, um, how many of those deaths could have been prevented? How, how, what is the productivity of human life that we've just lost and that could have been prevented? Had the person next to this person that had this, um, you know, brachial artery wound, uh, had that person known how to apply a tourniquet properly, uh, could we have saved that, saved that future doctor, future nurse, future policeman, future firefighter, future teacher? You know, could we have saved them? When you're doing this volunteer work, you're seeing people who are trying to step up and do something and be sort of active members in their community. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's empowering. You know, you, you have a community behind you and um, they want to help just as just as bad as we do, you know, and, you know, th these are high school kids, you know, these are, these are aunts, these are tias and tios, you know, these are little grandmas that are going to church, you know, 
and and it's empowering. It really goes to show. It's like, it's like the we may be the front lines, uh, and we are often referred to as the front line. But man, we have so many people that are rooting for us and that are really doing their part. The abuelas with tourniquets. Can you imagine? <laughs> we've we've just come up with a concept for a new movie. Tell me about the the kids that you're training, the high school students. Uh, my guess is they've seen a lot. You know, uh, most of these students are um, in underserved areas. Most of these students are, they're, they're not always the best of neighborhoods. And so I've had kids come up to me and tell me and say, you know, I wish I would have known this, you know, when my friend got stabbed. And I'm thinking, you know, you're a 16 year old kid. And then I, I think back to when I was growing up and, and maybe, you know, hearing about somebody getting stabbed in the government housing projects wasn't really that far-fetched of an idea. But it's so uplifting that they want to do something. We have those students and at the same time across town students uh, that are medical magnet, have every single opportunity, uh, and they are also, you know, chomping at the bit to come out and help. I do what I do because this is my community and this is why I want to be, you know, serving my community. They're the lifeblood of, of, of this community. You know I mean? Everybody says it and it's a cliche, but our children are our future. And so it's wonderful to see. Christian, thanks for doing that work. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for, uh, for shedding light on these, these issues. You know, I mean, people need to know that these services are out there. People need to know that they can help, you know, their neighbors. Christian Deonce is a critical care nurse at Providence Holy Cross Medical Center. You can find links to Stop the Bleed, including how to find training near you, on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Andrea Chia is a school nurse in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Most of her time is spent at a middle school, and she says she didn't quite know what she was getting herself into when she started the job. I definitely thought that school nursing was ice packs and band-aids. Ice packs and band-aids are literally the cherry on the top. I feel like I'm doing a lot of almost like case management, assessing students and then coordinating services for students with needs um, who need accommodations, um, working with interdisciplinary team to, to make sure kids are successful in school, whether or not they have a disability. I do um, a whole lot of chasing 30 something percent of families to get fully immunized. I do vision screening for whole grades, making sure that we have medication orders for students who need medications during school hours and, uh, and making sure they're done right. Being the only health professional on campus at a time, you know, we're the ones who respond to emergencies. So we get our steps in. You know, kids are coming in, you know, to see me just because I'm a safe space in the on campus. I can't tell you how many kids I see a day 
for symptoms that I eventually realize are related to anxiety. Um, the stomach aches, the headaches, the, you know, the difficulty breathing. I'm guessing that um, those symptoms of anxiety you would see in any school year, but I imagine during a pandemic, it's especially acute. I'm lucky that I have one school for four days. It's a, a middle school. That age group, I see a lot of kids coming in at any on any year. But this year has been difficult. Everyone was out of school for a year and a half. So they're coming back in with social anxieties, feeling inadequate in class. Everyone is literally saying, I can't believe everyone's hand, putting their hand up and they know what they're the teacher is asking and I just don't know and I just feel so dumb you know this year has been challenging for everybody you know when I'm walking in campus because I'm kind of a spaz at work I'm always just like booking it like walking really fast past everybody and everybody's just like hi miss hi miss and they look so happy to see me <laughs> um because I've been that safe place for them I saw a button. I don't think the person was a nurse. I think it was actually a physician who was wearing this button on their uh, uniform that they use in a clinical setting. Um, and the button said, it's safe to talk to me about drugs, which I thought was a really interesting bit of outreach to um, any any age group, but maybe to teens and people who are beginning to experiment with substance use. And um, I just thought it was a really smart way of saying, you know, it's okay to have this conversation with me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I love the idea of being so um, open and allowing kids to feel like, um, yeah, I'm that safe place to, to, to speak and ask. Um, I have definitely made an impression with kids that they can, they've, they've been able to come. I mean, they've come to me and asked questions. Some kids, unfortunately, didn't ask before they had some kind of um, almost medical emergency due to, you know, new drug use. And I've had to be with them in that time of crisis in their in their in their world because it, it was a loss of control and mm. panic i know that at least some kids know that i'm that safe place um i do have kids though coming in sometimes several days in a row at lunchtime just to be like hey miss <laughs> and you know some question about you know some sexual something or other and I'm just okay well I guess this is where I come in yeah I just teach them I'm so happy that they are coming to me <laughs> rather than the internet to to ask these questions that I think that's one of the my favorite parts about school nursing yeah that's got to be gratifying to know that you're providing really vital information to people at an age when they really need it and they they are so often misled yeah. with screwy information from someplace else yeah yeah exactly i'm happy in it i fo found joy in my my work as a nurse which i wasn't 100 percent sure i was going to find i'm glad you found it thank you thank you for having me i was uh i'm happy to join you guys andrea chia is a school nurse in los angeles 
Megan Kraft works at Swedish First Hill in Seattle, where she's a critical care nurse in the ICU. Rocky Duff is a surgical nurse for Providence in Spokane, Washington. The two met while on a mission trip to Guatemala. Well, I started going on these trips um, in 2016. I do think that through this work, I've just grown so much. Um, I've gained a, a further passion for global health care, which is something that is really important to me. Um, and just understanding healthcare systems in other cultures. Um, and one thing that I've grown really passionate about is, um, you know, working with organizations that are working to help stabilize and support healthcare infrastructure in these places. Um, so just an understanding of what healthcare looks like around the world and comparison to healthcare here in the U.S., I think I've become a, a better team member to my team here and the people that I work with there. So, so many things. Rocky, what have you learned? A lot of what Megan just said, but uh, the people are wonderful. One thing I've, I have to say I've really learned is uh, respect for the people of Guatemala that a lot of these people come as far as 12 hours away. And... Um, some of that is by foot. A lot of these people, they don't have a way to, uh, or a ability to afford uh, getting in a, uh, a taxi or a bus or uh, travel. Um, there's only one real airport in the country of Guatemala, and that's in Guatemala City. So there's people that come clear on the eastern side, and we're on the western side, just to have their operation. Um, I find that amazing. Um, and I've learned in this last trip, some of these people waited as far as like 18 months to have their surgery. And they just, you know, carried on and lived up to, you know, okay, I'm going to get that surgery done, but it's going to take a while. So, um, you know, you think about that. We're here in the States. We can just go down to an emergency room and walk right into a hospital it is not the same there so having that compassion for these people that um, have waited so long and there's still so many more people waiting for surgeries it it just takes my heart out you both have raised the issue about access to resources um, my guess is that that is pretty remarkable for you to witness the sort of Guatemalan staff that you're working with. Tell me about them. One thing that's been pretty amazing to witness over the years is the growth of the hospital. Um, we work, the hospital is called uh, Hilario Galindo. It's in the town of Rayu. Um, the hospital, the building itself has grown and improved over the years, um, but just the partnerships with the hospital staff um, has grown immensely over the years, and that's been so cool to see. Um, in the surgery department itself, um, we there is a sterile processing staff um, that Rocky and I both work with very closely, and um, they have just such an in-depth knowledge of the instrumentation, and they do such a good job. And like we, our job would be so much harder without them. Impossible, actually. Um, and they just 
it, you know, it's always, there's always this collaboration. Um, I'm not fluent in Spanish and they're not fluent in English. And, and so you kind of, you work to get over this language barrier and work together and understand each other. And you're in each other's way a little bit sometimes, but you, you learn to come together and by the end of the week. And, and then as you go time and time again, you just hope that the same people are there and, and there's that continuity and, and there has been, and that's really nice. The care, um, and it doesn't just stop at the hospital. Um, a lot of the care too uh, is the family um, because after the the person or patient is discharged, the family steps in and takes care of them. So a lot of these uh, patients, when they come, they have um, an alternate plan of care uh, that really involves their family. Um, so that's that's really kind of neat to see. Um, and it's interesting because one person shows up for surgery, but there's 10 to 15 family members out in the waiting room supporting that one person. Rocky, I'm curious if your experience in Guatemala has informed the way you practice in the United States at all. Um, it definitely gives me um, a strong uh, appreciation for um, and a different look at our care here in the United States. I take an extra 10, 20, 30 seconds or whatever is needed um, with every patient that I care for, um, incorporating their, their needs. Um, some of them are spiritual and, you know, uh, in Guatemala, they'll sometimes ask, Hey, will you say a prayer with me before, uh, we go back to surgery? Um, so it, it definitely gives you an eye opener to saying, Hey, let's take an extra second here. Um, what comfort measures can I provide to just take off that worry edge that you might have before you go back and have your procedure. And I think if you've ever had surgery, it, um, it, it can be rushed. And I don't like that. I like to really slow things down and make that patient feel like there's nothing more important than what we are currently doing for you and nobody else. Nothing matters. One thing that you see, just like the resource availability, I, I think that you learn what you can do with so little. I think one thing that I just take away every time I go is just a renewed energy for nursing care. And, and like Rocky said, just that reminder that I think it's easy to compartmentalize when you're in healthcare and, and this Going on these teams just reminds you that you are caring for a human life. And it's just kind of a reminder to slow down and take a look at the big picture. In a lot of ways, we don't think twice about doing a, I don't know, $2,000 scan to help us confirm a diagnosis. And then you think, well, what would $2,000 do in the hospital in Guatemala? And balanced against that, you've got, as Rocky said, of a waiting room full of, you know, 12 or 15 people that are accompanying a patient. So you balance, you know, a $2,000 use of a piece of equipment versus the family support of 15 people. They're different. The metrics are different. 
But in some ways, I think that family support might be as valuable as having access to a $2,000 MRI. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Um, um, just a, a, you know, it kind of takes you back to the very basics or the roots of um, what uh, healthcare should be. And, you know, I think I, I can at least say back when I was a uh, nursing student, um, you know, you're taught this and um, then you get out there in the world, you get busy and it's easy to forget. And I just love this opportunity to go to Guatemala because it takes you back to those basic things and it just humbleizes you like, yes, this is where I need to be. This is how we should do it. And um, um, always reminds you of how um, special those patients are, but not just as patient because if you bring a patient into the operating room, you're still caring for the family as well. Um, so you have two patients a lot of times. And on bigger operations, of course, it lasts longer. Um, you know, families would like updates, and as best as we can, we try to provide those. Um, but it just says, okay, I have this gift that I, won't, I want to, um, you know, hold on to, and I know it's there. So by specializing um, in surgery like we have, it allows us to say there's always this opportunity to care not just for the patient but for the whole patient Mm -hmm. their surgery is one part their spirit is another their family is another and trying to bring all those together um, is something that we often can lose sight of in a very busy world really well said i'm i'm so grateful for the two of you sharing your gifts with the people in Guatemala, but also talking about it with us. uh, Well, you're more than welcome to come on a trip with us someday. I appreciate that. Megan, thanks. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Megan Kraft works at Swedish First Hill Medical Center in Seattle, where she's a critical care nurse in the ICU. Rocky Duff is a surgical nurse for Providence in Spokane, Washington. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on Twitter at human underscore caring. Do us a solid and follow us there for information on upcoming episodes and guests. And be sure to subscribe. You'll find the Hear Me Now podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you can get a podcast. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Carrie Grinstead, Catherine Gibbs, and Heather Martin. We had special help this week from Annie Lair. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well. <laughs>